1: But I think when it comes to conflict and arguments, there's always, it's always a, a drive to find someone to blame, or like just be honest, but someone else to blame. Like it's not my fault; it's X, Y, Z. And and teens do get, you know, they get in the neck more than they should. I personally think and they are, you know, they can be very, you know, disrespectful, rebellious, and you know dis- disobedient and lazy and stuff like that. But that's so can most adults, if we're being totally honest.
0: You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team with the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hi, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. This week, we're chatting to neuroscientist and best-selling author Dean Burnett about the teenage brain. Why are teens so emotional? Why won't they listen when we adults depart our worldly knowledge? And why won't they tidy their rooms? Well, there are plenty of parenting books out there that attempt to answer these questions, but for the first time, it's teens who are getting an insight into their parents' minds. Dean's latest book is called Why Your Parents Are Driving You Up the Wall and What to Do About It, and it's all about reverse parenting. It offers teens an answer to why their parents are always dragging them out of bed, why they're so obsessed with asking how was school and other common complaints. He speaks to BBC Science Focus editorial assistant Amy Barrett.
2: head of publication of why your parents are driving you up the wall and what to do about it can you tell me a little bit about who this book is for
1: um ostensibly and officially it's for 11 to 16 year olds who are finding that they are having uh, bit more of a tricky time with their parents than they used to um very common phenomenon amongst most uh, older children and teens you know you parents have been the bedrock of your life for a long time and suddenly you find yourself arguing with them a lot more and it's an explanation of of that essentially but uh, unlike pretty much every other book which addresses this top this topic and subject it's for the child and teen who um explain to them why their parents are being difficult and belligerent because a lot of the time that is the case and that's something that's never actually acknowledged. I think that's an important... uh uh, an oversight that needs to be corrected. So that's officially uh, what the, the book is aimed at. But unofficially, I think it's for anyone who ever actually was a teenager, really, because we've all been through that part of your life when you find yourself batting heads a lot with your parents or authority figure or guardians or whoever it happens to be. And you know, I, I certainly found it quite cathartic to write about and understand why that was all happening. So yes, yeah, it's, it's for anyone who is a teenager, was a teenager or has teenagers in the broader sense. So Pretty much anyone really has a. <laughs> I don't want to limit myself.
2: <laughs> um, and what inspired you to write this kind of guide for teenagers?
1: Uh, well, um, I, I could give you some spiel about, you know, the sign of the times and you know, intergenerational disputes being quite. Uh... Quite prominent right now, and you I know the very, very strong political divides between the younger and older generations. Um, the, the, the environmental aspects, you know, Greta Thunberg is the leading voice of climate change. She's only 16, so right now we're at a very, very sort of important point in history where the, you know, the older generation and the younger generation are actually <clears throat> perhaps you know, more distant from each other than they've ever been. And something you know, which addresses that at least helps people understand it could be could be helpful. And I think you know, it's an important thing to consider right now but you know, if I'm being completely honest it was actually my editor Jamie who first approached my agent via me uh then me and then said uh, I got this idea for a reverse parenting book would you like to write it I thought <laughs> yes yeah, yes I would and, that, and that's pretty much what happened so uh, Jamie's a very good guy he has his own book it's a book of uh it's called uh, what I lick before your face it's a book of haikus written by dogs so he is an outside the box thinker shall we say. <laughs>
2: That's so interesting that the kind of the <laughs> idea came from him, but then you kind of, did you put your own spin on it? or?
1: Oh, very much. It was literally just his idea, like how what we did a in book, but which told teens to handle their parents. That was essentially his contribution to the process, but it was his idea. And I, as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, I wish I'd had that idea. But <laughs> then he said, well, you can still write it. It's like, I, I will. You, you you just watch me. And I did. <laughs> it was, um, yeah. So it was very nice. It was very nice to have, um, have that presented to me i'm often one with uh i like i love writing stuff but i've always struggled with the initial concept and idea so to have it just handed to me is that's like half the work done for me really (laughs) oh good i can do that definitely and i did and it was like something i've you know as soon as it was presented to me it was a case of i i didn't know it but i sort of i've always wanted to write that and i think a lot of my work previously has been uh leaning towards aiming at teens and saying look you're not the ones who are always automatically at fault you're not the ones who are just being constantly belligerent and angry it's a lot of adults have problems too and that's never admitted so i've tried to do that with my blogs and articles and stuff but this is the first time i ever actually had to you know the opportunity or he you was know, given the ability to focus on that entirely for the length of a full book and it was very uh, very rewarding to do so
2: hmm. and do you have sort of teenagers yourself you mentioned you have a daughter in the book don't you
1: I do, yes, but she's only uh, three. She's about to turn four, and uh, my son is seven, so I don't have teens. But I do have two um, uh, siblings uh, from my parents' second marriages who are nineteen and seventeen. So I've seen that up close quite recently, and and I I just remember, you know, being a teen and how difficult it was, and how you know people say that teens are disrespectful, but I don't remember ever being respected for anything when I was a teen. Hmm. Uh, You know, that's I think that's a very common. Oversight or something—something people don't recognize that respect isn't just automatic; it's earned. And if you look at the wider world, literally, a lot of the adult generation aren't really doing great things, and aren't really uh, doing things which would um, qualify for respect. If you want to be completely blunt about it, so yeah, I I do think it's uh, it's, a—it's. it's a common problem. It's, uh, it's one that's been gone back thousands of years for as long as humankind has existed. And I, I do have friends with teens and younger children. I've you know, consulted with them and asked about them. And, and social media allows you to obviously see what what teens are saying and uh, what's important to them. And I did quite a few conferences too last year. I did the Cranley um, Tech and Teen Mental Health Conference. So I was very much up to speed on you know, the current understanding. So I like to think it's still well-researched, even though I don't have direct hands-on experience with um dealing with teens but of course now that once my children do reach their teens they'll have this book so and just you know, just read that is fine leave me alone and i can, we can, we can uh, i can hopefully skip a few arguments down the line
2: hmm. is there any sort of thing in in this book anything that you really wish you'd been told when you were a teen
1: uh, yeah it's pretty much in the first passage it's almost like the the linchpin of my attitude for this sort of thing <clears throat> it's a very sort of it's still a very vivid memory um Is either GCSE results day or A level results day back in like the late 90s when I did those things. I was going to say like uh, mid 2000s to try to downplay my age a bit, but uh, that's really not going to get away with that. I've looked like 40 since I was 16, so it doesn't come easily to pretend that I'm younger than I am. But Uh, Yeah, it was, um, you know, because I remember being in school and it's like the the later Blair years and the idea of just leaving school and going straight into a job that was long gone and tuition fees were coming in. And, you know, people were emphasizing these exams are important now. You know, you can't be guaranteed a lifetime job. You can't just walk into an apprenticeship like people in the 70s could expect to do. There were no, like I'm from a mining community, so the mines were all shut down. The local factories were Thing and all, um, full up. So there was no guarantee of a job, uh, as people of the older generations seemed to think was the case. And we were constantly told, you know, you must do good, well in exams. And I'm from a rough school, and it wasn't particularly scholastically uh, highly achieving. So I was one of the smarter kids, and you know, they pretty pushed us to do as well as we could because obviously, you know, school results, exam tables, and stuff is important to them. So we were just constantly pressured to do well in exams and work hard and work on the clock and. And I don't have any sort of academic family to lean on. So it was it was hard. It was hard work to sort of you know, be constantly told these exams are vitally important. You're only a teenager, you don't know why. But, you know, if you don't do well here, you're essentially, you know, flummox the rest of your life. And it was a big deal to do these exams and do them well. And we, we were constantly pressured and told to do this. And we all did. And we all worked hard. There was us who did exams. And then exam results days published. And, you know, it's one of those days of record high marks across the country. And which is good, you know, like the highest levels of uh, A to C C grades, and you know, that was really encouraging and pleasant. It's good to know like we have done well. And you know, turn on the news, the first thing you see is someone like Michael Howard or Anne Whittacombe or John Prescott or ever saying, well, it just shows that exams are too easy now, doesn't it? And it, it was quite a kick in the teeth, you know, for to be a teenager, being told by the adult generation, your superiors, your authority figures, you must do well in these exams. If you don't work hard, you are doomed constantly for months on end. And to do that and to achieve the results that they were hoping we'd get. And to immediately be told by people in the country that no, you haven't succeeded. You're just a bit dumb. So obviously these are too easy now. And that, that's like completely pulled the rug out from under interest. And that, that's always stuck stuck me as in, you said, oh, we must invest in the children's future, but you just deny them one, you, know, you deny them a sort of any sense of respect or self-worth the first opportunity you get. And that's something which has been a constant, I think. And that's, you know, it's been a bugbear of mine pretty much all my life. You know, it's one of those things you're told you'll understand when you're older. Well, I am older now and I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's right. And I want to try and do something to remedy that. And that's sort of where, my attitude for this sort of book sort of spurs from.
2: And what is it that's actually different about the teenage brain compared to the, the fully grown sort of adult brain?
1: Uh, loads of things. And that's something I don't, again, that's another thing people don't seem to realise because uh, I think there's a sort of approach where, you know, you're a child until you, and and you hit your teens, you start acting a bit more, you know, independent, a bit more assertive, a bit more rebellious, and suddenly you should be treated like an adult. And that's not. Fair or correct? Um, the, the adolescent phase of brain development is a distinct phase all by itself. It's first off, it's it's losing a lot of neurological connections because as really a child you're absorbing pretty much any everything. And, you know, like all the this, like, some estimates say like from age like zero to two, your brain is forming a million new connections every second, which is an incredible amount of data gathering and absorption. And that's sort of not at that phenomenal rate, perhaps, but it build, It carries on until we hit adolescence. And that's when the brain sort of stops and takes stock and says, right, we've got all this, all this information. How much of this do we actually need? Because I mean, one of the is used in the book. It's like sort of getting a brand new smartphone and then you're so excited. You just fill up with every single app and meme and download you can think of, get your hands on. And it's fun for a while, but eventually that phone's going to become pretty useless because, you know, you're trying to find something basic like the calculator or the watch and you have to scroll through 50 pages of for apps and like oh, I can't find anything anymore. And, and it's not about how much information is in the brain. It's all about efficiency. And adolescence is when the brain starts becoming more <clears throat> more efficient, it clears away the junk you don't need. There's a process called pruning where lots of synapses, which have never been used more than once, are sort of just flushed away and the resources for them are taken elsewhere. Um, so that's like what's happening in the broad scheme. But it's, a, it's an intriguing prospect in that you know, the human brain is so diverse. There's so many different parts and so many new bits on top of old bits and the fundamental bits on top of higher functioning bits that the, the more complex parts like the, the frontal cortex with all the thinking and self-control and uh, you know, like forward planning happens that's so much more sophisticated than the more basic bits that it takes a lot longer to mature there are some estimates that and um, that the front part of your brain with all the higher thinking happens that doesn't finish developing until like your mid-20s uh, as opposed to like the more central parts of the brain which are older and more fundamental which control things like emotions and impulses and you know risk taking and sort of fundamental drives they're a lot older and more primitive they're well, not primitive little brain bits are very complex but com- comparatively so and they take less time to mature so they are they're as efficient as possible in your early teens and the parts of your brain which control like your emotions and your you know your, your temperament that's still developing well into your 20s so adolescents have this period where they can control their emotions and they regularly do but it's a lot harder for them to do so and the emotions they experience are far more intense as a result um so the comparison i use like if you think of emotions and sort of you know brief responses like that as music your parents are they're listening to the cast stereo with their emotions. Like, it's just they, you know, in the background. Whereas teens are, like, sat next to the speaker at a big concert. Their emotions are a lot harder to suppress, control, or just, you know, keep under wraps. And But they're constantly told to do that. Stop acting out. Stop, you know, stop being dramatic. Behave yourself. You're being stupid. You're being ridiculous. But this is the time when they're supposed to learn how to do all that stuff. So if you, you know, suppress their emotions, you make them... keep quiet and keep still and never do anything, the brain never develops that ability. And it does cause serious problems down the line. And we see that with adolescent mental health things and, you know, like male suicide rates where men are actually, you know, can't express themselves and are unable to keep bottling things up. And that has really bad long-term effects. And so these are things which should be more widely known. And that's sort of something I'm slowly working towards myself.
2: Mm. Absolutely. And how... How do we know so much about teenagers' brains and and how they they differ?
1: Lots of different studies have shown this. So we have the technology to look at what's going on inside a working brain now. And it's really quite intriguing that it isn't just a human thing. And that's something which I find really quite fascinating, that any sort of species which is social in nature or any mammal species, which which has a social life, you know, it's it's a social creature which groups together in family groups and communities. Um, they show similar patterns of behaviour during their adolescence, even like rats do it and chimps do it, where the adolescents are the ones who are just sort of reaching... The physical and sexual maturity they become more risk-taking they actually do wander off further from the the group the tribe and everything And um, so you can see in animals too like and that allows us to extrapolate a lot of what's going on there but you, know, you can you know, we have uh, tissue samples and things like that now you can see scans which show that like a small child's brain is actually a lot more connections in there than there are in the adolescent's brain because that adolescent is when they're being sort of flushed, essentially. You know, like they, they're getting rid of all these superfluous things to make things more efficient. So yeah, there's been a lot of science into it over the years. <clears throat> there's been a lot of science into it over the many years now. Um, one of the books I recommend is uh, Sarah Jane Blakemore's Inventing Ourselves. She's like one of the leading figures in developmental uh, brain research and adolescent things like that. And she's got a book all about it, uh, which explains it in like a lot more detail than I go into because hers is for adults and mine's not. And as a result, it has to be a bit more friendly, a bit, a bit less detailed, but um, yeah, so there's plenty of data out there which um, shows and supports this and like the, 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 the fact that teens need need more sleep, they're always tired all the time because because of all this has going on in their brain, all the huge developments and overhauls, they need more downtime to recover and maintain like their extra busy brain. And they don't get it because obviously the rules are you've got to be in school by nine and so many parents are, you know, kicking them out of bed 8am so you're wasting the best part of the day and that's actually really quite unhelpful in terms of their development there's been some schools in america which have experimented with a a late start time like 10 a.m so give teen students an extra hour in bed Uh, and they they should be reported sort of drastically increased um you know academic scores and like behavioral complaints so just teens find it a lot easier to function when they have the sleep they need and you can see this from you know in many other studies too so there is a lot of data out there about this but it just you know, it doesn't quite conform to the stereotype of teens are rebellious and snarky and they don't care about anything that a lot of adults who control the news um seem quite uh quite comfortable with maintaining and i personally disagree with that so i'm trying to again trying to tackle that with, uh, with my output
2: it seems like a lot of things that are maybe built or designed with teens in mind are actually built to the specifications of an adult's brain
1: yeah, um, a lot of time that can be the case. Uh, there's a you know there's a lot of um, concern right now about uh, smartphones and social media and stuff and how it's potentially <clears throat> quote unquote damaging for uh, develop a developing brain. And I mean, there's lots of evidence. Well, actually, I'll say that again. There is evidence out there. There's not lots of it because. Things like smartphones and social media, they, they are relatively new in the grand scheme. They've only been around for what, a decade or so. And that's not really enough time to, uh, to see any long term effects. You know, we're talking long term human lifespan, which is like 70, 80, 90 years now. So we, we don't know for certain yet. But of the evidence there is, it doesn't seem to be a great deal which says that these things are actually damaging to a child's development. It's uh, largely just, that's just largely scamangering and suspicion. Uh, but, yeah, like a lot of the technology out there is, of course, invented by adults and for adults. And you know, just to uh, apply this to teens is a little bit more, you um, know, it, 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 there's a lot of overlap because see, teens can of function at adult levels in most the many ways. But a lot of things which, you know, adults get together, talk to other adults about what teens like and they give them something. And that isn't really quite how it works a lot of the time. Like you're trying to remember your own teens and you know, extrapolate from that. But because of the way the brain works, we have a far more, should we say, uh, you know, optimistic uh, recall of our childhood because the, the, the negative memories tend to be, they tend to fade quicker than the positive ones. And people get quite nostalgic for childhood because, you know, it's comparatively less stressful than things are now. But it doesn't really mean that it wasn't stressful, it's just that, you know, you have a sort of false comparison and as a result too you get a lot of stuff aimed at teens which sort of misses the mark because it's written or created by adults for uh, talking to other adults and extrapolating widely and i think i mentioned the book that so many adults seem to approach teens as a problem as if like they are mindless obstacles like like cows on a motorway which is Unhelpful, I think, because they're not. They, 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 teens are fully grown human, well, fully not fully grown, obviously, but they are fully conscious, very smart humans who can see what's being said about them and take a, t- take a reaction to it, and they often do, and rightly so a lot of the time. So, yeah, I you know, you think you know, when you have things created for teens without teen input, then you will have things which teens won't necessarily like, and I think that's just fairly logical.
2: And how much of our character and our personality is set during our teenage years?
1: Um, well, obviously quite a lot in that to your <clears throat> the things you learned in your teens will stick with you for a long time. In terms of actual brain development, some people point that uh, the, the evidence suggests age four is like a key age for laying down the fundamentals of how your mind works it's like when the brain's finally sorted itself out enough to start functioning as an individual you know it's a small child individual but an individual nonetheless and that's when things like personality and preferences start to come to the fore but during your teens is when you so you learn obviously you undergo an substantial development at that time like you a lot of your baselines are established there too like you know what your sexual preferences are is an obvious case because obvious example because obviously you're flooded with these hormones giving you strange new feelings you never had before and strange long that you can't quite get your head round, and which you would learn about in school but people aren't allowed to do that apparently because that upsets a lot of parents which is you know, disconcerting and you know so there's that as well but they, like there's some studies which show that because because when, when you're teens, when your emotions are most powerful, like when you're they, they, they're they fully developed and the rest of your brain sort of isn't, the things which affect you as a teen will stay with you for you know, the longest time the rest of your life, and particularly key in music, apparently. that That's why so many people think, oh, music today is rubbish. It was much better when I was young. But it's because when you're a teen, things like music, they hit you at an emotional level far more profoundly uh, than they do as an adult. And nothing will, because the adult brain is more mature and more sort of this set nothing will really hit that same level of you know intoxication or emotional stimulation as it does when you're a teen so your preferences you get when you're a teen they're the ones that tend to stick with you because right? everything else doesn't doesn't match up in comparison when you're an adult because that that time of your life when the brain is that responsive is over and so like the things that you like in your teen, you probably will like forever and that's you know that's what that was one reason why it's a key age
2: that's really interesting yeah it is a case of the the music everyone will say the music in their teenage years was better but it's actually more just the the way we we process the music
1: yeah i mean there there are are some studies to show that you know modern music has gone more commercial so it's more it's more repetitive and more simple if you look at the acoustic analysis and stuff but i say 50 years time you will get like crusty music doing this saying, oh, the twenty tens that was the era for music. And then this, you know, we had Mamba number five. You didn't have that. And that's that sort of thing will probably be happening. And it's quite it's quite weird to think that. But that is almost certainly what what will occur.
2: <laughs> and at what point do you stop being a teenager? Well,
1: that's actually a, an interesting question. It's something which is actually quite a contentious one because we have all these like you know these age limits or like these um, minimum ages, like eighteen, to be able to vote, to be able to <clears throat> drive and own, own a car and buy a house and things like that. That's when you're an official adult in UK under UK law. But you know, like I said, the the part of your brain which is the most the most adult, the most sensible and forward thinking, is still maturing into your mid twenties. So you know that's you know, you're not fully developed yet you, as an adult, but in a biological sense, you're an adult as soon as you are able to reproduce. So when you, as soon as you hit puberty, that's when you're an adult in the biological sense. So when you're like 11, 12 or 13. And I think most people would strongly disagree that people that age are not fully grown adults. So that's, you know, that's just biological uh, adulthood. But psychological, mental and social adulthood, that's actually a tricky subject. And it's it varies a lot. Because like The age of consent is a particularly... Um, salient one, because obviously it varies from country to country, which is intriguing in itself. But I think in this country, it's also really inconsistent in that you, the age of consent is 16. So at the age of 16, you can legally you know, have sex with someone should you want to do so, as long as it's older. they're They're all of the right age too. And that's completely legal. But you, know, you can't actually look at anything sexual, like anything pornographic or explicit, until you're 18. So you can have sex at 16, but you can't see it until you're 18. And that seems... That clearly is not. That doesn't match up. I mean, how is it meant to happen? Sixteen-year-olds? Do they all get blindfolds? And you know, is, is that that seems like that would be counterproductive in many ways. And so you can see how there are. You know, it's, so, you know, it's obviously been trial and error over many, many years of society and observations and things. But exactly when you start being an adult is uh, is is a is a, is a, is a very uh, fluctuating and very inconsistent um, uh, point, which you know, no one really seems to agree on.
2: Mm. And you mentioned sort of Greta Thunberg and, you know, teenage activists. A lot of mm. the criticism against um, things like the school strike for climate is that, you know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, fully formed adults yet who can have these opinions. But why, how do you think that teenagers are handling the, this extra pressure that society is putting on them?
1: Um, I think that, well, they handle it surprisingly well, I'd say. I mean, you see all these teenage protests. There's way actually, there's never been any sort of, uh, you know, Controversy or violence or clashing like that. And if you're looking for like the angry, violent protests, you know, look at the, some of the recent vote leave protests with all the 50 plus year olds getting into tangles with the police. And that's quite telling, I think, personally. But I think it's, um, I think it's really good that the teens are reacting this way. Like they, I think people sort of demonize social media saying it's corrupting, but it does provide a, a strong sense of you know, community. You can go out there and find other people who agree with you. That's not necessarily always a good thing because plenty <laughs> of people agree with bad things. And that's, um, that's, that's a problem in and of itself. If you have some wacky belief and you find other people who agree with you, and that's normally enough for people to be convinced it's true. And, but that's, 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 that's a side issue. But there are, um, you know, it's good to see that like, they're reacting as maturely as they are. I mean, I think you could forgive a teenager for looking at, you know, the wider adult world and saying, well, they're clearly not doing what they need to do so it's up to us now and that's that's a fair conclusion and you know it's going to be more stressful but it also gives them sense of more control a sense of taking taking the issues under their own wings and then being responsible for them that's that's really good and but i will say like the criticism of teens like they're they're only young they don't know they're they're adults yet they can't make these decisions that um, logic was strangely lacking when like 15 year old ran away to join isis and married a a terrorist like that she's she knew what she was doing she's fully conscious so she should be punished as an adult so so if you're 15 you're you're completely conscious and you're fully adult enough to be tried as a terrorist but if you're 16 you haven't got clear what you're doing and you shouldn't be leading a climate revolution so you know it's clearly more ideological it's case of if they agree with me then they're no, it, <clears throat> they, if they they disagree with me, then they're too young to know what they're doing. If they do something I don't agree with, and they're completely old enough and should be punished as a result. So you can see it's not exactly uh, you know completely consistent and logical uh, a stance to take most of the time.
2: Are teenagers now better people than say you or I were when we were teens?
1: Well, I can't speak for you, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about you. You were a teen, and I was I was a lovely boy, but um, but there are there is some evidence showing that it's going that way and that teenagers now perhaps not my i i still count as millennial by all accounts i'm just on the cusp you know i'm one of the very one of the very first millennials so i'm not sure if that term is still valid anymore because i look like i'm you know, closer to death than not but um the uh yeah there are some details to show like even, like previous adult generations that teens now are they're not having as much for example casual sex and things like that back from we're talking the 60s of the age of aquarius the free love era and things like you know they, they are being more aware of things like consent and restraint and they're not drinking so much and they're not um they're far more conscious of mental health issues and and are far more you know open and accepting of things like gender issues and sexuality and and things like that, and you can argue that's something that's been happening in a long time. You know, The things like the Flynn effect, that every generation gets slightly smarter than the last because there's just more information available. And I, see, so I would argue that the internet has probably accelerated that somewhat because you can access the information anyway right now. And you know, again, there are. Social factors, you know, if teens aren't uh, having as much uh, casual sex or doing as much drugs or drinking as much, is it because they're more health conscious or more sort of savvy? Or is it because because of the financial situation, they're all still living at home a lot more? And as a result, you can't do those things when your parents are breathing down your neck constantly. So it it does, the evidence suggests that yes, like the modern day teens are more switched on and savvy than the previous generations. But there's going to be a lot of factors which contribute to that sort of data. So I say I say a tentative yes, but I wouldn't say quote me on it. Hmm.
2: And why is it so important that teenagers realise that it's it's not that their brains are wrong, but it's also not that their parents' brains are wrong? Why is it so important to have a book like this to communicate that?
1: Well, I think it's a big um, it's a big it's a big help to know that you know your parents aren't this tyrannical authority figure who thinks they're always right. I think most parents are winging it just as much as anyone else and i know but they can't give that impression when you're a young child because that's terrifying to think that you know, the, the person who was in charge of your whole life is just blathering along blindly like like every other adult it can be why parenting is so stressful but i think when it comes to conflict and arguments there's always there's always a, a drive to find someone to blame or like just be honest, but someone else to blame. Like it's not my fault, it's X, Y, Z. And and teens do get, you know, they get in the neck more than they should, I personally think. And they are, you know, they can be very, you know, disrespectful, rebellious, and you know dis- disobedient and lazy and stuff like that. But that's so can most adults, if we're being totally honest. And that's not necessarily something that they have ownership of. So I think obviously when you come in from when you have two people coming from very different perspectives or different sort of points of view to know that the other person isn't being belligerent just for the sake of it or just because they want to be dominant because they, they have their own things they're dealing with too i think that's a that's, that can be a big help to know that well this isn't just a personal attack against me like they're, they're, they're struggling with this issue too and i can't understand where they're coming from but maybe they can't understand where i'm coming from because it's not like they're refusing to it's it's a biological thing it's a, it's a natural thing and i think that's a, that hopefully could take the pressure off and sort of think like well we are arguing a lot but we're both you know in a situation where we can't quite make that leap for them to, to agree with the other person and there are reasons for that beyond stubbornness and you know personal you know, personal inclinations or just you know, a, a desire to annoy someone so i think it takes the pressure off both sides of the argument which could you know, could help resolve things a bit faster maybe
2: would you say there's anything that's changed about your own parenting style after writing this book
1: uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, again, my kids are still too young yet, and uh, so I, I can't actually put much of it into practice. But I think the communication thing has become a lot easier. Like, I've, I've noticed a lot more about me getting snappy at my own kids. And I realize, well they're not actually doing anything different or wrong. It's because I'm sort of a bit overworked right now uh, with the book, ironically enough, I suppose. <laughs> I was uh, trying to get that deadline done. And I'm being less patient with them than I normally would. And they don't know what I'm doing. Like I'm sat in my garden office by myself, and like they, they 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 don't see the work I'm doing, and they just treat me like daddy's here again. Hooray! And and I need to be. I I need to be more conscious of that. They're not doing anything to wind me up on purpose. They are just being children, and <laughs> just just because someone doing childish things at like me is inconvenient right now isn't their fault and i need to stop you know i was never like you know, i was never a heavy-handed parent by any means but i've sort of i've been more conscious of catching myself from reacting a bit more uh annoyed when that's not really a, a fair or valid uh, response to be making so yeah i mean i think it'll come more uh, to uh, come to the fore more when they are teens and when they are experiencing the things i'm i've been looking into but for now it's it's given me a clear perspective of my own parenting which i found quite helpful
2: now we decided to ask some teenagers and some parents of teens what they desperately wanted to know i wonder if oh, you then. would you mind taking a few of their questions
1: <coughs> of course i will
2: so josie age 17 she asks um why do par- my parents do the same things they tell me not to do for example my mum says don't shout through the walls just actually come and speak to me face to face but she's always shouting through the walls to me what can she do
1: that is a very good point. That's one thing I do bring up a lot. Like parents can be completely inconsistent as well, and a lot of the time they they don't realise it. You know, like they there's a thing of you know if you what other people do, you find annoying is because you do it, and you, you know it's it's a part of you that you don't like. Um, I mean, a lot of the time it's 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 a simple matter of not focusing constantly on being a parent twenty four seven. Like a parent's life is full of things. You know, like lots of duties, household chores, work. And you know, I don't know what your parents do, and they will slip sometimes. It is a lot easier for parents to shout and say come here rather than run up the stairs and speak to you to face and come back down again. But again, it's it's inconsistent. They shouldn't do that. You see this a lot with things like smartphones, like parents tell their kids Oh, you can't use that. It's, it's bad for you. That 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 device you, you use at the table is it's disgraceful. And but then they're on theirs constantly, and that's like, well, what what do you expect them to do? Or or things like you know, you can't drink. It's you know, it's bad for you. And then they've got through two bottles of Merlot a night, and like, I don't <laughs> think that's really sending the right message. You know, the whole "do as I say, not as I do" thing is is an annoyance, especially for a teenager who is craving independence and sort of adult respect and isn't getting it. Um, all you can do about it, I th- I would say. Pointing out i mean that's i don't know what sort of relationship you have with your parents if your parents are probably more uh, prickly types they might reject object to that but i mean i can't calmly, calmly saying you, know, you tell me not to scream through the walls but you do it to me so you can understand where i'm coming from well that's that's not ideal and you know i think most parents most parents who care about being parents would logically say that's that's a valid point so i i think it's important to you know One of the main things about being a teenager and parent, there's a lot of conflict going on, but a lot of studies show that the conflict is resolved a lot more when it turns into a dialogue. It's not like, you know, I hate you, I hate you, rah, 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 that's not, that's really good. But if you can do it at a time when you're feeling a bit more calm, like, you know, just in the kitchen, just doing something menial, then go in and say, can I just mention this, that. Uh, you tell me not to do this but you do it too if you're going to be approaching a more you know a calm stress-free manner then that's something which hopefully most parents will respond positively to because it shows you're being mature about it as well of course if you scream through the walls saying stop screaming through the walls i mean because you know <laughs> that's probably counterproductive but, but yes yeah, so i think you know these things are valid concerns and valid points and if your parents if you have a good relationship with your parents or you want one then they they should be able to be raised in a calm neutral manner i mean I, I, I could be completely wrong about that i don't know your parents they might fly off the handle completely but it's something which i think is worth pointing out because you know, parents want to be consistent and then you know, when they're not being they should be they should be told that
2: and just because their parents doesn't mean they can't improve their parenting i suppose
1: yeah, I mean, like most parents, I think want to be good parents and uh, would like to you know, find out how to do that. And you know, if it's for coming from the teenagers themselves, that can be quite useful. If it's not like sort of demanding thing, it's a you know it's a reasonable point of view, uh, then that can be. I personally would think that was helpful, but again, each to their own. Each to their own. <laughs>
2: Um, now, Jenny is a parent to four children between 10 and 18, and she mm-hmm. says, uh, I've been there, done it all, and I try to impart my knowledge and wisdom on them to help them, but they just don't do what I say. And Why is
1: that? Um, it's probably because <laughs> you're their parent, and <laughs> at this particular point of their life, that is not what they want to hear. That's a big part of it, in that it, it, it does seem to be an evolved Mechanism for making sure humans, as a, as a whole, uh, you know, don't fall into stale and static situations. And uh, you know, so teens are rebellious because they want uh, their independence, they want their, you know, they want the right to decide their own lives. They want they want uh, things like locus of control. These are big parts of human you know, human identity, and to have someone tell you like not to do that is. You know, it's frustrating. It's a uh, it, it thwarts an uh, a strong desire you're having because of the way your brain's developing. This idea for um one of the problems is that the parts of your brain which process reward, feelings of pleasure, things that make you happy, those have matured pretty quickly. So um all the things which used to make you happy, like your childhood toys, like you know, family days, the the fun fair and stuff, that's Okay, that's sort of like um, it's sort of like trying to watch an, an old clip on a brand new TV screen. You know, like it's all muddy and blurred, and it's not quite as good anymore. And you need new, more exciting things now. And unfortunately, you know, one of the most familiar things in a teen's life is their parent. And so the, the parents sort of go from being you know, the center of the universe, like the, the the main provider, to guardian or you know, a warden who uh, they're more of a restrictive force rather than an encouraging one. And so because it's the because <clears throat> it's the parent who is saying it then that automatically becomes a bit more suspect they don't they don't really they don't crave like their parents approve anymore they crave it from their peers and other people and that's a, as a result it's harder for parents to come impart information which when it seems like being controlling um how to go around that? I mean, I, again, I, I, I think that's part of the reason I wrote the book. In that it's, I'm for most teens, I am a complete stranger. So, if it's me telling you that and telling them they're right about a lot of things, that's hopefully a bit more, uh, a bit more useful, perhaps a bit more uh, conducive to being accepted as as a thing. But it, 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 as ever, it's something they do grow out of. Like when you hit your you know mature adulthood, then you sort of become you sort of appreciate your parents more. All those tempestuous parts of teens have faded away and you you sort of listen, you think more about what your parents have said. So if 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 it's a a tricky situation, it it will pass. And that's the one thing which I think is important. don't, um, Don't write them off and they won't write you off and then that's, that's a big part of it and and like the, the parent relationship is important for the rest of your life right? it's not something which you know just fades away after you're a teenager and then if anything it goes back to being as important as it once was but now you're like two adults who are you know in similar situations so so yeah so you know keep at it i guess <laughs> so the general response there keep at it and but it's not your fault i think it's not like you're a terrible parent it's not like you being born it's just that the teen brain is Automatically resistant to being lectured to or controlled by parents, and you know, unfortunately, imparting the wisdom can often be perceived as you shouldn't do what you're doing; you should do what I say, and that's you know, that's something which is going to be received with suspicion, and that's unfortunate. But I guess you just keep plugging away, and hopefully, something sink in. <laughs> um,
2: and finally, Ben has two teenagers. He says that when I was a teen, I often argued a point, and even if I knew I was wrong, I would carry on arguing it anyway. Um, why is mm-hmm. this, and what can you do when I know my daughter is now doing the same?
1: <laughs> it's a really common thing, isn't it? Then, um, at some point, the argument itself becomes uh, you know, sort of self-sustaining. The, the original focus of it isn't actually relevant anymore. Like it's like I want this thing, you can't have this thing. You didn't really want it that badly, but suddenly it becomes, you know. Life or death It's like if I don't get this thing now, then that's that's, that's it. I am going to be to- totally, totally at a loss for forever. And it it it's, it is a common thing. It is frustrating, and I think it's important to recognise that it, it, as an adult, you say, "No, I knew I, uh, I I know I was wrong." But when you're a teen, you don't know, you don't necessarily know that. Like the, the emotional response you're feeling is overwhelming the the rational part of your mind, which is still developing, as you said, and that becomes. Tricky, tricky to handle that, to, to to take care of all that. So the emotions themselves become the dominant force, and therefore you're arguing with a parent, and it's not it's not really anything to do with what the point was. Now it's more about winning is about of getting your way because you know you feel like you've, you're have you trapped in your own home you have no rights you have no say in what goes on like you're, you're completely under someone else's control but it, it, cleaners often do get a raw deal like saying like you need to be more responsible you need to do things your own way you need to you can clean up after yourself you can provide for yourself you should get a job and stuff but still my house, my rules do as you're told, I like, go to school, do these exams. And it's like a worst case scenario for the developing teen brain a lot of the time. And therefore any, any sort of victory or any chance to assert some control of their own life becomes vitally important because it happens so rarely. And that's where you get things like, you know, huge arguments over who put the wet towel down on the floor, not on the back of the, uh, the rook, back of the hook, back of the hook. It like, what's why way based the first chapter of the book around? Actually, that's a classic argument. I remember And it's it's not, you know, both parents and teens will probably, it's not anything particularly crucial. It's not like, you know, the the wet towel on the floor is going to cause structural damage to the house, which will bring the whole floor down around us. It's just, it's it's, it's a matter of principle at this point. And as a result, you get people who are, you get people like parents and teens who will argue because, it's not about what the argument's about. It's about the fact that, you know, it's it's an attempt to control and assert dominance and stuff. And there's some sense of independence from the teen and some sense of control and calm for the parent, which is what they sort of used to when they were children. I know children are chaotic more so than teens, but they were at least, at least you were the unrecognizable authority thing, for most of the time. So there's a a consistency there. Um, I think a lot of the research suggests that these arguments they can be gone on and on and even if if someone's like unwilling to back down on either side it's usually good to find something that you let you do agree on to end on that sort of note No, you don't have to accept that you're right or, that, you know, or you're wrong but say like if they're arguing about you know some sort of outfit that the teen wants to wear and you say that's you are not wear that it's ridiculous and they refuse to back down and you refuse to back down like you, could, it's ideally you would sort of introduce something which you do both agree on So, say, well, at least you know, at least it's not about as Auntie Mabel's outfit at the recent party that was ridiculous. And then you can say, yes, we we, we both concede that that was a terrible outfit, and that, uh, that if you can inject some sort of sense of agreement, like you know, we are still on the same page in other ways, just that this one thing is us. That does, according to the research, at least seem to be a helpful way of. Both reducing arguments and maintaining a more solid relationship because it's not about it's when it turns into just pure antagonism like right versus wrong and and willingness to back down that that causes you know negative connections and associations between parents and teens but if we introduce some agreement to say I don't agree with doing this but we both do agree on this Uh, I know I know you you didn't tidy your room but You did do your homework, so thanks. Well done with that. Interjecting some sort of element of positivity where you do approve of or you do agree on, that can take the edge off to the point where it doesn't necessarily become a serious problem. Uh, It is uh, according to what data I've seen.
0: That was Dean Burnett talking about the teenage brain. We ought to say that Mambo Number 5 was actually released in 1999 and it didn't trigger much of an emotional response for me, but each to their own. Dean's book why your parents are driving you up the wall, and what to do about it, is available now. For inquisitive teens and adults alike, the latest issue of BBC Science Focus is packed full of features, news and interviews. This month, we find out why we're racing back to Venus, explain near-death experiences, and find out what would happen if robots took our jobs. If you want to know more about what makes teenagers' brains tick, check out our previous episode, What We Got Wrong About Pandas and Teenagers, where I talk to the Royal Society Book Prize winner and neuroscientist Sarah Jane Blakemore. There are loads more to listen to as well, so let us know which is your favourite with a rating or a review. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.